today on City Cash Chicago. In late September 1982, the country was gripped with panic as officials ordered people to throw away the Tylenol in the medicine cabinets and remove it immediately from pharmacy shelves. That's after six people in the suburbs and one person in the city mysteriously died after taking the -the over-the-counter medicine. Now, investigators quickly learned how people died, but for 40 years, they haven't been able to tell us who was behind the killings. But that could change. Chicago Tribune reporter Stacey St. Clair is co-host of Unsealed, The Tylenol Murders, a new podcast and print series out now. It's Monday, October 3rd. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. Back then, you could you could open the capsules and pull them apart. So they they... They didn't. They, you can't do that now. That's actually one of the changes they made. But you could pull it apart, dump out the acetaminophen, which is what Tylenol. It's like what that powder is, and then they put um, cyanide in its place, and then they put the capsules back together. Stacy, welcome back to City Cash Chicago. So happy to be here. Can you take me back to September 29th, 1982, 40 years ago, uh, and kind of walk me through who were the people who died after taking this Tylenol? Right. So it was just a sort of normal September day. It was a Wednesday. The the temp was was pretty hot. A 12-year-old girl woke up at 6.15 a.m. in Elk Grove Village, and her name was Mary Kellerman. And she wasn't feeling good. And she, her dad told her she didn't have to go to school that day. And he went to call the bus to tell her, tell them she wouldn't be going to school. She went into the bathroom. She took a single Tylenol and she collapsed immediately. And her father rushed into the bathroom where it seemed as if an invisible force was suffocating her. And as they were struggling to to figure out how a 12-year-old who was otherwise very, very healthy, could have collapsed and died like that. Um, There was a man who died in Arlington Heights, and his name was Adam Janis. And he and his family would sort of be the key to solving this mystery. Um, Adam took a, a Tylenol, took some Tylenol around lunchtime and collapsed in his bed and never regained consciousness. Um... His family was grieving him. Uh, they came back. They went to the hospital. They got the sad news there. They go back to his house to start planning the funeral. This really takes a turn in the story. And I mean, like, it's already heartbreaking yeah. at this point, right? The confusion is mystery is already taking over two families. But because they are so unsuspecting of the Tylenol, they come home to grieve, as you say. And, and what happens next? His younger brother goes into the bathroom and and takes some Tylenol. And his wife, who he had just married three months earlier, follows him and also takes Tylenol. And and they both collapse. And it's the firefighters who responded to the call earlier in the day come back to the house for Adam. And they see Stanley and Teresa Janice now on the ground. And they say, you guys, this isn't heart attacks. There's there's something serious going on and we need to figure out what. And that just sort of kicked off a chain of events in which 
a public health nurse goes to the Janice house and, and she deduces it's, it's the Tylenol and nobody believes her at first. I told him that there are six capsules missing. It has to be the Tylenol. There's something in the Tylenol. And he went, oh, no, blah, 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 blah. no, I was not believed. So I stamped my foot and said it louder. This woman that you don't know standing there with her shorts and a T-shirt, of nobody of any kind of authority. I was so upset, I went home and had a stiff drink and complained to my husband. Helen tried to wind down with a glass of scotch, and she cried. I said, I know it's the Tylenol, and they're not paying any attention to me. There's an individual who is, is starting to watch these individuals come in, Dr. Kim, and, and they're, they're maybe starting to, to put some of this together, but, but while they're doing this math, other people unsuspectingly are purchasing and, and taking Tylenol. There are three other people that day who, t- who take the Tylenol. Um, they don't know this at the time at the hospital, but Dr. Kim Here's the, it's the Tylenol, and he says, you know, I know what acetaminophen poisoning looks like, and that's not it, but, you know, it's got to be something. And he comes up with Tylenol, or with um, cyanide. Lives were saved because of these people who, who stepped up, and, and it's, it's incredible. But what happened afterwards was it changed everything about the way we consume products. It caused a national panic. Um, and everything is different since then. Who were some of the other people we mentioned? Mary, Adam, Stanley, and Teresa. Uh, who were the other three people who um, unfortunately, you know, passed away? Yeah, um, Mary Lynn Reiner. She was um, a young mother in Winfield. She had just given birth to her fourth baby a few days before. Um, and... Uh, Mary Sue McFarland. She was a single mom who worked at the Illinois Bell store in um, Yorktown Shopping Center out in Lombard. She collapsed at work. And then the the final person to die was um, Paula Prince. And she was a Chicago resident. She lived in Old Town. Uh, she was a, a flight attendant for United. And she landed at O'Hare, um, stopped at the Old Town Walgreens and grabbed um, a bottle of Tylenol, and she paid $2.39 for it and um, took a capsule that night and, and died. And she was found several days later. Dr. Kim, after seeing it, Adam, Stanley, and Teresa in a matter of hours, puts together this medical mystery, you know, that the pills had been poisoned with cyanide, but they didn't, they still didn't have a motive or, or the person responsible for poisoning them. So, so how does this investigation start to get built? You're right. They figured out the medical mystery very quickly. They did not figure out the criminal mystery um, as fast. So what happened was there, these were two different counties, right? It was Cook County and DuPage County. So they have different prosecutors, who different state's attorneys who would ultimately oversee charges in the case. And there was these different towns and they didn't know how everybody was going to work together. This was today we have regional crime task force. We didn't have that, um, 40 years ago. So they, they sort of turned to Ty Fainer, who was the Illinois attorney general. He really had no authority in the case, but he had led he was a former federal prosecutor, a very, very good one. And he had led multi-agency task force, um, before, and so they thought, okay, well, then Ty's the guy 
to do this. So he gathered every agency he could think of and, and created this, this mega task force. In the meantime, um, you know, this, this was scaring the country. So Ronald Reagan um, ordered the FBI to get involved. And so they decided um, they would investigate whether uh, Johnson & Johnson, the parent company of Tylenol, had purposely put cyanide in the pills and then not labeled it, which was like everyone said that was completely ridiculous. Of course, that didn't happen, but it was their way in. So with kind of a wink to the ridiculous and absurdity of it all, that's how the FBI entered the case. But episode two that really digs into the turf wars is where I really unfortunately couldn't help but think of like pop culture's portrayal of like interagency work. What was involved in the turf wars and how contentious were they? Um, when people talk about the turf wars, they talk about it 40 years later from the perspective that they didn't solve it, right? There, the, no one was ever held accountable. So this group was on this big national stage. Everybody was watching them. Everybody wanted them to solve it um, and to make an arrest. And um, they they didn't. CPD and the FBI got involved um, and they they had tension, right? The detectives we talked to from, from CPD sort of felt like the FBI painted them all with the same brush, that they all were corrupt. You know, they didn't have a lot of respect for the FBI because the FBI doesn't traditionally deal with murder. And because um, murder's a, a state crime. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming up there one at a time. Well, here's FBI so-and-so, and he's going to tell us all about the Chicago case. And I'm sitting there. What is this? Paula Prince was in their jurisdiction. They would figure out who killed her. And so FBI, she gets up and he said, well, you know, they found it. I said, excuse me, whoa, whoa. I says, uh, agent, agent, uh. I was the detective at the scene. You weren't there. What the hell is it? What, is, what are you giving this story for? I don't doubt for a second that every single person involved wanted to solve the crime yeah. and wanted, probably wanted to be the one to solve the crime. One sort of famous story um, that we heard many, many times was um, Bob Green, a columnist for the Chicago Tribune. The FBI asked him to plant a column in the Tribune, which is like not a great look for us. And he obliged and he gave, um, what they did was they had him give the name with Mary Kellerman's parents' permission. She was a 12-year-old girl. Give the name of Mary Kellerman's parents, her home address, where she was buried, um, and then talk about like whoever the killer is should see the pain they've caused this, this family. And um, the hope from the FBI was that the killer would then drive by the house or visit the grave to kind of revel in what he or she had done. Um, that, this was the, around a time that that criminal profiling was really starting. Yes. People were starting to get into like the, the psychology of, of the potential killer. And like, like this was like a, a really different, uh, like a new age. And it sounds like that was really at play during this case. Yes, for sure. And this was, was actually one of the recommendations from the profiler. As they're moving through this, uh, something breaks in the case and somebody actually like writes in to Johnson and Johnson. Stacey, can you walk me through this letter and how this like takes the case in a new direction? The letter says, if you want to stop the killing, 
wire a million dollars to a specific account number. And that account number was a real account number of an account that had been closed at a, at a Chicago bank. And they come up with a name and it's Robert Richardson. Yeah. And, um, you know, police try to find Robert Richardson, but he has disappeared from Chicago. Um, and they end up learning that he had written a column for the Chicago Tribune, uh, like an op-ed piece that he had submitted. And the Tribune, um, I mean, not a lot of great looks for the Tribune. No, I was going to say, it kind of makes sense that y'all were doing this podcast, <laughs> trying to cover, like doing nine-month investigations, trying to figure this out. Because it seems like y'all was just like, you know, kind of being used throughout this thing to just... <laughs> right? They get a picture from the Tribune of Robert Richardson, the one that ran with his his uh, editorial piece that he wrote. And they put it on TV that night. And... Um, a police sergeant in Kansas City uh, sees the picture and knows instantly who it is because it's a man he's investigated several times. Robert Richardson, whose real name is James Lewis, the task force then declares um, Robert Richardson slash James Lewis um, one of their suspects. And and that's sort of the road they follow the rest of the for the next 40 years. James Lewis, where exactly did episode one start, start, and how is it connected to this individual? So episode one starts in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where uh, James Lewis lives, Mm -hmm. the man we just talked about, the man who wrote the letter and was convicted of attempted extortion for that letter. Um, He's been living there since being released from prison in the 1990s. We have learned that there have been efforts to charge him. Um, There have been efforts to, to, Convince prosecutors to charge him. That's the most accurate um, way to describe it. The police say they have a chargeable circumstantial case against James Lewis, and um, they are looking for prosecutors to act. And um, so we went to to Cambridge uh, to talk to him and my my colleague Christy Gutowski, uh, my co-host. She actually actually ran into him on the street and and spoke with him. And that's where the that's where the first uh, episode starts. And then? That's him. Hi. Don't run. I'm hurt you. We're with the Chicago Tribune. Everyone else is talking. He wasn't what I pictured. He was wearing knee-high running socks, shorts, and a t-shirt that said, I heart my awesome wife. He had white hair and a full beard. He was older now and unsteady when he walked. I used to like to talk to the Chicago Tribune. Why are, are you so quiet now? I so did. We, that was a long time ago, 40 years ago. I know, 40 years. <laughs> Do you have any theories on who is the Tylenol killer? I think that's fairly obvious. Not to me. Ladies, you've been harassed over something for 40 years you didn't have anything to do with? What new tips have have brought James Lewis back into light? Because if they were convicted of the letter is one thing. But if, if I understand it correctly, at the time, all of these poisonings happened in the Chicagoland area. But James Lewis at the time lived in New York. Is that correct? So so what is the evidence beyond the letter? So we'll be unveiling more of that as our series goes on, but we have reported... I know you ain't said it yet. That's why I, that's why I was trying to get it. I was trying well, to get it. <laughs> but we have reported, and this is uh, this is really a significant one to, 
to law enforcement, um, at least, is that, um, but you are correct, they cannot place James Lewis in Chicago. And that's always during the time frame, those few days before um, the victims or their family members started buying the, the Tylenol, they believe it was placed on the shelf within those couple of days prior. They've never been able to place him in Chicago. Um, they still can't place him yeah. in Chicago um, during that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, true crime has been such a huge storytelling genre for for podcasts and TV shows. But but there are people who feel it can be, you know, beyond entertaining, exploitative. Did you struggle with feeling like you were having victims and families, you know, revisit this this really difficult trauma? Yeah. And, and that's why Christy and I, um, first of all, we, we told ourselves we wanted to tell a story that was was bigger than just like the gritty details of a of a true crime story, and the the Tylenol story does lend itself to that because it changed everything. Right, every time you go into the grocery store and you have a safety seal around something, that's because of the, these murders. Um, we made a decision very early on. When we started that we weren't gonna, you know, we'll hound the FBI and we'll hound government agencies, but we're not gonna hound the victim's families. We'll explain to them in a letter what we're doing and then give them the opportunity. Wherever their comfort zone was, that's where we landed too. Um, we talked to Joe Janis, who is the the sole surviving brother of, of Adam and Stanley. And he was there. Stanley collapsed in his arms after Adam's death. And he wanted to talk to us about it. And he 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 feels that it, you know his parents are gone and if he doesn't talk about his brothers and and the futures they could have had and what they meant to the people who love them then that's going to be forgotten soon so we really and i we i think you know you do this all the time with with or you should with victims families is is give them control of how they want to uh portray it and and that's what we did Stacey, one thing I've always appreciated about you and our conversations is you approach all of your stories with such a deeply human perspective. Thank you. Um, and, and, I, and I'm so grateful for the work you you and your colleague are doing. You know, as you process so many testimonies and details and, and listen to so many, you know, FBI undercover recordings, do you, in your professional opinion, think that there will be an actual charge in this case? I mean, can there be, you know, statute of limitations and all? Well, there's, there's no statute of limitation on murder. I, I don't know what prosecutors are going to decide, but Michelle uh, Rosen, who is the daughter of Mary Reiner, um, she did not want to be uh, interviewed for the podcast, but she, she sent me a statement that has really stuck with me. Um, she has investigated her mother's murder on her own for years. And she says, it's time to release the records. Families deserve answers. The FBI has the master, right? They control, they have all the documents and they are refusing to release them um, because the case is, you know, quote unquote, open. And if there aren't gonna be charges, they should release the records and let there be some kind of public accountability. Christy Gutowski and Stacey St. Clair are the investigative reporters behind Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Stacey, you are a great friend of the show and of me. Thank you for coming back to CityCast Chicago. 
anytime. The next episode of Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders, is out this Thursday. There's a link in our show notes to the podcast and print series. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot is expected to lay out how the city will bridge a $128 million budget deficit in 2023. Now, the plan won't include a property tax. Lightfoot said last week she's walking back her previous proposal. Starting today, drivers over by me moving through Jackson Park will see closures, lane reductions, and detours with haze closed for the next three weeks between Stony Island and Cornell. To my Rogers Park listeners, there's a virtual community meeting today to discuss the closing of the Tui Park Fieldhouse and the best ways to help neighbors currently staying at the growing tent encampment in the park. And some good news to get you through. This is the last week to enjoy Food Truck Fridays down in the loop from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Last Friday, they had Harold's empanadas and gumbo out at Daily Plaza. As always, we appreciate you for listening, and we want to give one last thank you to everybody who popped out at Midwest Coast Brewing last Thursday. It meant a lot to the entire team. We'll see you at the next one, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. You know, I've been working on this project for nine months, so I haven't had anything to come on your show and talk about. And at one point, I was like in the five timers club. So this is like my sixth time. And I thought I was like one of like the like most, you know, frequent guests. And I kind of took pride in that. But then like, I don't know who it was. Like two people passed me up during this project. Maybe Sarah. Maybe Sarah might be in the seven. Sarah might be in like seven. I got my yeah. eyes on her because I see this. <laughs> I saw it on Twitter and I was like really legitimately upset about a tweet. I didn't like it. I did. I did not like the tweet. I normally <laughs> like the tweets you guys sent out. I didn't do it. Sarah.